Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Well, I've been talking about this amazing new deal we have with Stamps.com. And a lot of what it boils down to is the post office. There's too many what-ifs. What if there's traffic? What if you get there and they're closed? You can forget all of that stuff if you just use Stamps.com. You can do anything that you can do at the post office at your own desk now. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your computer and printer. You get exact postage. For any letter or package, whenever you need it. Uh, You know, it never closes. What never closes? Stamps.com. I use it. I love it. I particularly am fond of this attractive little digital scale. So attractive. And right now, you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial, which... Very confusing, but you know what I mean. Plus, a $110 bonus offer. That's including the scale to weigh your letters and up to $55 of free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on that radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in R I S K. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. And now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Megatroid behind me now. I believe that means unusually large Troid. Sounds delicious. So, what are we calling today's episode? I'll tell you. Blush. And that sounds kind of pretty, but it's all about being unnerved. So uncomfortable in your own skin that your own skin is showing it. Now, do all of the stories today involve being embarrassed to the extent that you have facial blushing going on? I don't remember. I'm stoned. Why why don't you guys do the fact-checking for me on this one? Oh, and one of you guys tells the first story today. Sam Mullins is a Risk fan from Vancouver. Sam is a regular at the storytelling show in Vancouver called The Flame. An amazing show. And Sam, we are thrilled to have met. Uh, He's on Twitter, at Sam S. Mullins. And here he is at The Flame in Vancouver with a story we call Get Cool Fast. Yes, Get Cool Fast. So, Stesha was my best friend in the entire world. Um, We were born in the same month of the same year in the same hospital, and our mothers were best friends. So, from the time we were very little, it was just just me and Stesha. Uh, Like, you know those... uh, those bathtub pictures that, that parents take where it's like a certain, it's getting close to bedtime and they throw all the kids that are roughly the same age in the tub at the same time to save time and water. It was always, it was always me and Stesha in the tub. We were best friends. But one day when we were about 11, Stesha came up to me and she told me that uh, her family's house was for sale and that they were moving to Hawaii permanently. And I was completely devastated. I couldn't even imagine what life would be like without Stesha and her, and her freckly little face, you know? <laughs> all, all the pictures from when we were little, it was just me with my, my knobby arm around her and her buck teeth, like... And just like that, she was gone. So... Um, That first year that she was gone, uh, we only talked a few times when uh, our families would call each other on on special occasions and we'd we'd, like pass the phone around, everyone would talk to everyone and Stesh and I would have a quick little awkward conversation. I say awkward because we were were getting to be that age, you know, where, where... Suddenly, if your if your best friend's a girl, it kind of enters into this strange like sexual context where where your genders kind of get in the way of you just being best friends. You know, like you're you're a young man and a young woman, and and, and talking's a little bit difficult. So um, I got used to life without her, and a couple of years later, before I knew it, 
It was the summer that I turned 13, a.k.a. the summer before high school, and which is a really big summer because if you think about it, you need to prepare yourself to go from a, a building with, with finger paintings on the walls to go into a new building with like anti-drug ads and there's like <laughs> condom dispensers in the bathrooms and when you're sitting in the classroom looking out the window instead of the familiar jungle gym with a slide, there's four guys wearing bandanas, hotboxing and Acura Integra. <laughs> so, so my plan for the summer was, was pretty clear. I needed to get cool fast. <laughs> Um, I, I, I want to, to wear the right things, to think the right things, to do the right things. Like, I, I, I wasn't even concerned about having my own unique style. Like, that first year, I just wanted to walk in already the epitome of what a high school boy was, you know? Like, I wanted to shed my elementary school self. So I, I went out and I bought a skateboard, and I was really bad at it, so I, I just carried it around with me everywhere. It was, it was more of an accessory than anything. And uh, I, I started listening to some new music, and uh, I, I learned all the words to the Limp Bizkit song, Nookie, before I even knew what a Nookie was. And uh, I started, I, I got my first... Uh, shaving razor and you know to shave off my lifetime's accumulation of facial hair which was about a millimeter of of white blonde hair that was invisible to the naked eye you know get cleaned up and I was doing push-ups and sit-ups and learning some some guitar and uh, I was learning how to how to handle my my voice cracking uh, you know the, the secret to not having your changing voice crack is to just not be excited or enthusiastic about anything ever you know, I needed to learn how to play it cool so that I'd be ready to talk to girls. Pardon me, to talk to women. So, so it was in the middle of this get cool fast regimen when one day my mom uh, burst in and she's like, hey, uh, Stesha's on the phone, pick it up. So I pick it up and Stesha's like, hey, Sammy, guess what? I'm coming to Vernon this summer to visit for a few weeks, and I'm actually going to be in town for my birthday. And I was wondering, since I don't have a house in Vernon anymore, and since you live on the lake, I was thinking maybe I could have my birthday party at your house. And my mind was reeling. This was perfect. Because the best part of having a girl for a best friend is the birthday parties. Like, at every one of Stesha's birthday parties growing up, I was always the only guy, and I used to act like it was a drag, but it was the best. <laughs> um, it, it was wonderful. So now Stesha's asking me if I wouldn't mind if she brings her 20 beautiful friends over to my... Her, her beautiful French immersion friends, which, in Vernon, that's as exotic as it gets. <laughs> So they're gonna, they're gonna come over and put on their bathing suits and swim at my house? And I don't have to lift a finger? Like, like this was perfect to me. And this, this whole birthday would serve as like a test at, at the end of the summer where I can prove to myself that I am cool and I am ready to talk to girls. The stars were aligning. So it's the day of the party and all the pretty girls are showing up. And uh, 
and everything everything's going great. You know, I'm playing I'm playing a, a, a burnt CD. I, I just burnt on my new CD burner. Uh, it was like all the coolest music I could think of. It was mostly just Blink 182, and uh, and um, I was. I was, we were all like swimming in the lake and eating barbecue and uh, I, I was like talking to the girls and, and catching up with Stesha and I, I was doing my best to sit in like a semi-reclined position with, with the sun hitting me at the right angle to accentuate my abdominal muscles. <laughs> because even before I went to theater school I knew the importance of good lighting. Um, so... Um, I'm, I'm, uh, it, it's like a little bit later on and all the girls are out on the dock and they're all laying in the sun and, uh, and two of them are at the end of the dock and they're hitting a volleyball back and forth and they hit the ball into the water and they're all like, oh, I don't want to go in the lake. I'm all, I'm all warm and dry now. And I'm like, oh my God, this is my chance. <laughs> Time to be a hero. So I stand up and I'm like, I'll get that for you. And, uh, and I like dramatically take off my sunglasses. And my plan was to not to merely just hop in the water and retrieve the ball. No, no, no. My plan was to run, to sprint as fast as I can and jump as far as I can because even at that age I knew that that's what women really want <laughs> is someone that can run and jump far <laughs> right girls <laughs> uh, so so I took off and I'm, I'm running down the center of the dock and there's girls on both sides and everyone's watching me and uh, like I might as well have had a cape on I felt like such a hero I'm running down the dock and with a few feet of dock left trouble because we were swimming for a couple of hours so the top of the, the surface of the dock was really wet and, and slippery and, and I slipped and I hit the deck, literally but I had enough momentum from my heroic sprint that I was now sliding on the surface of the dock. Now, had I just slid off the edge and into the water, it would have been totally fine. I would have been like, that didn't even hurt. I'm gonna go and get the ball now. But that isn't what happened because there was a nail up. And the nail cut me from here to about here. And about here, it caught onto my bathing suit. Now, had the bathing suit ripped and then I fell in, it, it would have been okay. Even if, even if it fully caught my suit and it ejected me from the suit nakedly into the lake, I truly believe that I could have brought it back and it would have been okay. I would have been like, wow, what a freak accident. Could you pass me my trunks? I'm gonna go and get the ball now. But that isn't what happened. Because the good people at Quicksilver make too fine a product. 
and my trunks didn't rip. So what happened was, I went over the edge, and I swung, and I hit my head on the pillar, and my legs were straight up in the air, like kicking like mad, and, and I'm splashing around, my head is half underwater, and my penis is out. Side note, George Costanza was in the pool. I was in the lake. I was in the lake. Um, so I'm upside down and I think I'm drowning and I don't know what's happening. I'm in fight or flight and I'm splashing. And what does one do when you're in what you perceive to be a life and death situation? happened next, I have to give it to you second hand because I was underwater. Um, but legend has it that my mom was inside making a potato salad. And she heard me calling for help. And she snapped into action and she knocked the, the green sliding door off the track and she was hurtling over lawn furniture and weaving through girls. And she got to me and she pulled me to safety in a matter of seconds. And... I was so confused. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Shit, what, what the fuck? And I'll always remember, my mom whispered in my ear, honey, quit cursing. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like covered in blood and I'm shaking. And I remember I looked out at the lake and I could see the ball and it was, it was long gone. It was floating away. But... The movie Castaway hadn't come out yet, so I couldn't even redeem myself with a well-timed Wilson joke. <laughs> so I, I turn my attention to the girls, and all of them are half-heartedly trying to conceal their laughter. <laughs> and I thought to myself, high school is going to be the best. <laughs> Thank you. You play it cool. Play it cool. Cool! When I was in sixth grade, I fell in love. I fell in love with Katherine Hepburn. I was in Father David's religion slash drama class and he showed our class a movie starring Katherine Hepburn and Humphrey Bogart called The African Queen and the moment the movie started playing the entire class just sort of erupted in kids making fun of these old-timey people who were talking funny on a boat in a river in Africa but I on the other hand was dumbstruck I was in awe of, of that woman on the screen, and I'd never seen anyone like her. I couldn't 
get over how fascinating and strong and feminine and amazing she was all at once. And I just thought she was completely captivating. And all I wanted to do was yell at the kids around me to shut up so I could pay attention to that amazing woman that I had never seen before. Catherine Hepburn had lit some, some sort of fire in my belly, and I ran up to Father David the second the movie was over and asked him if that lady had made any more movies. And he said, yes, yes, she's made a ton of movies. You should check her out. So that night, I went home and I watched The Philadelphia Story and Bringing Up Baby. And after I watched those two movies, that sealed the deal for me. I was in love. I, I was in love and obsessed with Katherine Hepburn. And it was the kind of obsession that I think only a preteen girl can have. Like, it was, it was the amount of energy that my peers were devoting to, like, Freddie Prince Jr., but for an old lady. It became my mission in life to just consume everything she had ever made or been in or written or anything written about her. And I used to scour the TV guide with the highlighter and highlight showings of her movies. And the more I saw of her and the more I read about her, the more I just loved her. And I loved her because she was everything I wasn't. She was this really strong, confident, sort of brassy woman who was also totally sexy and like had men falling for her left and right and some women just like a feminist trailblazer with sex appeal and I was a freakishly tall gangly 11 year old so (laughs) I knew if I could be like Catherine Hepburn then people would want to start hanging out with me so I just studied everything about her when I watched her movies and read her books And I tried to walk like her and talk like her and dress like her. And at the time, didn't realize that when you're 11, dressing in like men's slacks and a turtleneck and trying to talk with a Bryn Mawr accent like doesn't win you a ton of friends. (laughs) The more I got to know Catherine, the more she became this sort of presence and, and voice that was always in my head. And when I when I would be scared or need encouragement, she would sort of pop up. And like when I would be in the cafeteria with my tray full of food and be petrified with fear about where I should sit and who I should talk to, Catherine would chime in and just say, buck up, sit down, and eat. And, and I would, and it would be fine. And she became this sort of guiding moral compass voice that I lived my life by. Catherine Hepburn is by far the closest thing I've ever found Uh, to like a spiritual or like religious faith in anything. And, And she was there for me through everything. She was there uh, when I was sitting on the couch in between my parents on New Year's Eve 1999, heartbroken because I was one of the only kids not invited to a big fancy like New Year's Eve 2000 party. But Catherine was there and she said... Family's what's important. You have them. You're lucky. And I felt a little better. And so she was also there when, when I wasn't so cute and when I was claiming my independence. Um, once I was gardening with my dad and we kind of split up and we had a big yard and I was off in my own little corner pulling weeds. And because I wanted to do everything like Catherine Hepburn, I also wanted to see what it would be like to shake like Katherine Hepburn. And in case you're not familiar, Katherine Hepburn developed a sort of Parkinson's-like tremor or shake. 
Uh, if you would like an example, I recommend On Golden Pond because it's really in full force there and it's a good movie. Don't you think that everyone looks back on their childhood with a certain amount of bitterness and regret about something? It doesn't have to ruin your life, darling. You're a big girl now. So anyway, I was pulling weeds and just kind of shaking and doing my thing. And my mom saw me from, from the deck up on the house. And she yelled down, Joe, what are you doing? Are you trying to shake like Catherine Hepburn? And I hear Catherine in the back of my mind say, it's time to show him who's boss, kid. And, and I turn around and yell at my mom, stop being such a cunt. And... I had never said anything like that before in my life. And my mom then flew down from the deck with a bar of soap and shoved it in my mouth. And I think I was, I was 13 at the time. So that was demeaning, but, but powerful at the same time. And, and she's the reason that I finally did get friends and find myself. Um, when I was 14, right at the beginning of high school, there was a new kid at school named Peter, and he was fabulous. And he invited me to his birthday party, which was unsupervised, so I was very excited. And at this party, Peter offered me my first cigarette. And I knew smoking was bad, because I grew up in the 90s, but I couldn't help but say yes, because Catherine Hepburn had smoked, so I was going to smoke, and it was going to be awesome. And it was. And, and Peter became my smoking buddy and then my real buddy, and, and we're still great friends. So with Catherine's help, I made it through high school. I had a group of friends who didn't care that I brought up weird tidbits about Catherine Hepburn whenever they were mildly applicable. And um, I, I was on a, a trip looking at colleges with my parents in Boston towards the end of high school. And we had just finished touring like five campuses and we got back to the hotel room and I got into my PJs and hopped into bed and I saw on my phone I had a text message uh, from Peter and it said, sorry about your girl, frowny face. And I was like, what the hell could he be talking about? Oh my God. The only place there was internet in the hotel was in the hotel lobby. So I grabbed my dad's laptop and ran down in my PJs, whipped it open and went to CNN.com and the headline read, Actress Katherine Hepburn dies at age 96. And I had sat there for about an hour before I started looking around this lobby I was sitting in crying. And, and there, there was a, a sort of grand ballroom attached to it. And there were people going in and out in, dressed beautifully with big smiles on their faces. And they, they were at a wedding reception. As I'm watching them, one of them sees me, and, and it's an older woman, and she starts coming toward me. And, and she gets to me and puts her hand on my shoulder and asks me if I'm okay. And I want to say, no, I am not okay. We have just lost an American hero, and you guys are having a fucking party. But I, I can't say that. And then I can't tell her the truth, which is, I'm just here being 17, crying about Catherine Hepburn being dead. So, so I tell her the first thing I can think of, which is, I lost a friend. And she pats me on my shoulder and tells me, everything's going to be fine. But I know everything is not going to be fine. I don't know what I'm going to do without Katherine Hepburn. There was no hope and no joy left now that she was gone. And, and for weeks, I stayed in this funk. And, and my friend Peter took me out to coffee one day to try and cheer me up. 
and try to get me to talk about anything other than the fact that Catherine Hepburn was still dead. And finally, he was a little fed up and he took my hand and looked me in the eye and said, look, I don't want to sound insensitive, but you do know that you didn't actually know Catherine Hepburn, right? And somehow, I had lost sight of the fact that I knew I didn't actually know Catherine Hepburn. And, and this was, was jarring news to me, even though it was clearly the truth. And, and this sort of weight lifted off me when he said that, and he was right. I didn't know Catherine Hepburn. Of course, I don't actually know Catherine Hepburn. She was an old lady on the East Coast, and I was a teenager in Oregon. But, but she had been such a constant presence in my life. She, she was my conscience, my, my Jiminy Cricket voice, that I had completely lost sight of the fact that she wasn't an actual person in my life. But this was good news because it meant that all of that independence and self-esteem that I sort of attributed to her giving me, I had really been cultivating myself over many years. And, and that woman who I fell in love with on the screen in Father David's drama slash religion class was just a fabulous catalyst for me growing into myself. And Catherine Hepburn didn't make me grow up because I didn't actually know her. So, even now when I am faced with situations that I think are way out of my league, I'll hear in the back of my mind, stiff up a lip, kid. And I'll be so grateful that I had a fabulous role model like Katherine Hepburn, but I'll also be thankful that I know that I can take it from here. I believe in the example of a perfect human being. Mm-hmm. That if he certainly proved that if you can live for other people away from yourself, you will be happy. And if you live for yourself, you will be unhappy. And I really believe this very passionately insofar as people do live uh, with uh, the other fellow in mind, mm-hmm. they have to be happy. So because it raises you up, you know. Sort of golden rule. I think so. Mm-hmm. I really think so. This is Risk. This is Donora behind me now. And we just heard the fabulous Miss Jolenta Greenberg with a story we call Bringing Up Baby. And like the subject of her story, Jolenta too is a dazzling actress. You can find her on Twitter at Jolenta G. Jolenta was a student of ours at thestorystudio.org. 
And that right there is a perfect example of why I love teaching storytelling so much. To be able to work with someone like that on their own true life experience and come out with something so entertaining and edifying, really. So if you've ever been thinking of, you know, joining us, please do go to the storystudio.org because remember we have business workshops. We have online workshops for anyone with a webcam and a good, you know, connection to the internet. We have two-day workshops, uh, we have one-on-one coaching. There's a whole array. And it's so useful for so many people in so many different ways. Some people just come to, like, get over their shyness. Some people work on their, you know, telling stories for career purposes. Other people are just crafting stuff for shows like this one. And I'll tell you something. Half of the time, I'm just sitting there listening. (laughs) But it's an honor. And I'll tell you something else. It's a hell of a lot more entertaining than watching TV. Okay, we're going to move on to one of our very favorites, uh, Risk Regular. A dear friend of mine, Miss Carrie Kenny Silver of the state and Reno 911. This is at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. That happens once a month at the Nerd Melt Theater. The next one is on August 30th, 2012. Here is the fabulous Miss Carrie Kenny Silver with a story we call May I Say Something? Guys, what a cool space. Ew, space. Um, so this story is about my family, and that's always so weird because they have the internet. But um, so I married this really awesome, awesome guy. He's a Jew. It's part of the story. Um, but I also just like to say it. It's like he's black. He's not black. He's a Jew. Um, in some countries, that means he is black. But. Um, <laughs> He's a white Jew, very dark-skinned, uh, besides the point. Anyway, I married this, this man. I married the, into this incredible family. I'm so incredibly blessed. I mean, it's sort of everything that I hadn't experienced as a child. My experience as a child, also incredible people, amazing, incredible people, just a different side of the tracks, I guess is what we say. Uh, my extended family all live in the heart of the country uh, in Illinois, in a tiny town called Pekin, Illinois, which until I think last year, the high school team was the Pekin Chinks. <laughs> yeah, we're very proud. All the players would run out of the field and these people in big paper mache heads and that band would play, dun, 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 very progressive <laughs> town. And for fun, you take your rascal scooter to Walmart and get a Slurpee. Um, my husband's family uh, race yachts, you know, those boats with the sails and stuff. And uh, they go on safaris, not just at the amusement park, real ones where you take an airplane to. They're fancy folks. So this was all new and exciting for me, you know? I mean, a lot of fun, exciting stuff. Plus all the Jew stuff is fun uh, for me. I like to decorate, so I've got, I've, this is honestly true. I have a section of, of my garage that's Christmas and a section that's Hanukkah, and then I'm always excited when they're separate, because then I can take it up and put it down and do the whole thing. You're so glad you don't live with me right now. 
so we have these events, these family gatherings, and, and I hear from other friends that the Jews love to do the family gathering, I guess, so the, the Italians and the thing. We're just sort of a mishmash. We get together when we can, and we have Slurpees at Walmart. But, uh, but the, this family loves to get together. They love to, it doesn't matter what happened. You got a new car. We've got to ha come over and have a mitzvah about it. Okay. Um, so this was a real cause for mitzvah. That's a good word, right? A mitzvah. We were cavelling over the mitzvah of Chanukah. So, um, you know, I get a little bit nervous because it is still kind of new to me and I still want to be, you know, do the perfect little thing and I'm like, is this offensive to Jews in any way, this dress? You know, the, I wore, a, you know, the first time a big swastika and I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know. It was on sale at J. Crew, and now I know why it was on sale. Um, but, you know, so I get, my, uh, I get my, my husband all, you know, dressed up in his little tie and suit and everything because I think it'll impress his mom that I got him into a suit. And uh, my son, who, um, he, uh, the way I describe him is just that he's a force of nature. He's six years old. And, you know, we used to say that children were difficult or uh, had behavior problems. We'd say now he's spirited. <laughs> and he is. He's got a lot of spirit. <laughs> so taking him to things like this, you know, it's hard because, you know, you can only give him so much Benadryl before you have to go to the emergency room. <laughs> so my son's all Benadrilled up and my husband's in a tie and I'm wearing a shirt that doesn't have a swastika on it. And we get to one of the family members' house. And of course, like every event that they have, there are speeches. And everyone is expected to speak. And that's, you know, kind of wonderful. But it's not my crowd, surprisingly. So um, I always try to, you know, make a joke, keep it light. They're a very serious bunch. And they're very passionate. So we had, you know, the gavilta and the chakalaba. <laughs> and we sang the chorkel flechindamad. <laughs> And we read the Torah. We didn't read the Torah. Uh, but, you know, we did all the things, the celebration, the Hanukkah stuff, and it's always fun and new and exciting for me. But then the part that I don't love is the loudspeaker comes out. And every member of the family owns a loudspeaker, like a, like a PA system. And you're having, like, three people over for coffee, and they're like, let's talk about our day. Who's going first? I talk like they're from Brooklyn. They live in Newport Beach, but that's, I just think Jewish people all talk that way. So um, this family is incredibly well-read, well-traveled, educated, lovely people, inspiring people, um, intimidating to me because I do better, you know, amongst people like you uh, and myself. Um, no, these are, these are, you know, people who've, you know, gone to MIT and, you know, I'm like, all you have. I shouldn't have said that. You all went to MIT. Um, but so anyway, so this, this particular evening of speeches, the topic was, what happened in your year that was extraordinary? Or as in my memory, they said, extraordinary, because they're Jewish. So uh, they go around the room. Uh, one person says, we won the international yacht race uh, from, you know, the Straits of Gibraltar to Panama City. 
I don't know. I don't know where these people are, but I clap politely and I'm like, ah, I've done that. <laughs> Lovely trip, especially in October. Um, and then, you know, someone else says, we bought another museum, and then everybody claps. And I'm like, I love art. <laughs> then it comes to me. And truth be told, that afternoon, my show of six years had just been canceled. Totally fine, really fine. A l so tired, so ready to be done. But, you know, that was really what was extraordinary in my year. And given my tendency towards inappropriate humor that brings the whole room to an uncomfortable halt, I said, well, I just got fired. <laughs> That wasn't the reaction. If you had all been there, it would have been a better night. Total silence, a moan, and then a hand on my shoulder from behind. You'll get another job. Fuck you. It was a joke. And I think they're all looking at each other thinking, she, that is, see, she does comedy, not very funny. So whatever. So then my husband saves the day because he had won a fucking Emmy that year. Good for you. And I was like, I'm so proud of him, asshole. And uh, so, you know, we get through it. Phew, we're through that. It's time for the uh, portion of the evening. And we get in the car, we get the fuck out. I hear a little voice at the top of the stairs. Now, I don't see my son throughout this time. So I'm thinking, he's rummaging around in someone's sock drawer, we're fine. <laughs> I'd like to say something. Now, in most circumstances, an adorable six-year-old boy in a seersucker suit saying, I'd like to say something, would be just so welcome in the room. <laughs> you don't know my son. You think I'm inappropriate and uncomfortable. So my husband and I grab each other's hands because immediately everyone jumps to, what does he have to say? Give him the mic, give him the mic. And there's like a 20 minute thing of giving him that. And I'm like, he doesn't need, he's good. He's good. He can't, he doesn't speak English. Oh God. Okay, make it quick. So he gets the mic. And as if he were channeling Al Pacino. He takes this long pause, and he's at the top of a marble staircase. And I feel like now I'm like, you fucker, you've been planning this. He turns around. He turns back around to the matriarch of the family who's looking at him with these lips and the smile and this $400,000 ring. And he goes, I'm not talking to you, lady. I'm not talking to any of you. And he runs away. I threw up in my mouth a little bit. You know the part in The Grinch when his heart grows? Mine went out my rectum. So, what is a mom to do? to protect with her life the dear child that she loves. 
I thought I could blurt out, he's retarded. (laughs) Oh, dear boy, we barely got him here. But I thought, they know he isn't. So instead I saved it because they know I'm movie savvy by saying, it's a line from (laughs) Scooby-Doo. What does that mean? Well, they bought it. Oh, Scooby, we're not familiar with the the (laughs) Scooby-Doo. Makes sense. Let's have (laughs) So we went and had and we got the fuck out. As we're driving home, I said to my son, honey, and a lot of my sentences start this way, I'm not mad. I'm just curious. What were you thinking? He put his little head down and he said, Mommy, I was just trying to make that big lady laugh. And I said, I get it. We just need to work on your delivery. (laughs) Now my husband, remembering what I had said one minute earlier about having been fired in a room full of people who just bought the fucking constitution and have it in their living room and it was an extraordinary year put his hand on my shoulder and said, I think mommy needs to work on her delivery too. (laughs) Thanks, you guys. I grew up in a very secular family. We had almost no religion. We never mentioned God. We didn't talk about spirit or anything like that. We celebrated the Jewish holidays, but in a very non-religious way. Around five years ago, I started doing yoga. I took on yoga primarily as a bodily exercise, but as I got deeper into it, I found myself changing a little bit and My heart was opening up. I found myself getting less tense and more calm. My anger kind of melted away. And I just felt myself getting softer and more compassionate. And it became an important part of my life. And I decided that I needed to explore that side of things, the spiritual side of yoga. And I wasn't sure exactly how I would do that. But one day I got this email from a friend of a friend through a mailing list, and it was kind of obscure and random, for this spiritual retreat. All I knew about it was it was a spiritual retreat for gay men who practice alternative spirituality. And I thought, this would be a safe space for me to explore whatever it is that I'm going through. So I was a little embarrassed. I didn't tell anybody about the trip. I borrowed my parents' car and drove 11 hours and ended up at the Between the Worlds Festival in the middle of the woods of Ohio. And I first realized that something was a little bit off when I introduced myself to people. And I introduced myself as Omri and they said, oh wow, is that your magical name? And I said, no, that's, that's just my given name. And they had names like Dionysus and Shadow Wolf and star dancer. And the guys looked a little different than me. They had mohawks and crazy ear piercings and 
pentagram tattoos. And I realized I had ended up in gay pagan witch camp. We started the festival by getting into a circle and all holding hands. We took one deep grounding breath and all chanted Om together. And I thought to myself, okay, this isn't that bad. I'm used to chanting Om. I can do this. There was one gentleman, Odin, who was the leader of Between the Worlds. And he was a large, jolly man, very gregarious. You could hear his laughter echoing through the woods no matter where you were. He said, And now I'd like to call in the Brotherhood of the Spectrum Blade. In March, ten guys wearing white togas with red sashes, carrying toy tridents and swords. And the Brotherhood of the Spectrum Blade knelt before Odin, and Odin said, I charge you with protecting the men of the Between the Worlds Festival. And the Brotherhood of the Spectrum Blade stood up and aimed their tridents into the sky and asked the god and goddess to protect us so that we can do our sacred work. And I thought, holy shit, I am way out of my element. What have I gotten myself into? Then Odin invites the weather witches to come into the center of the circle. And five men wearing scarves and skirts pranced into the circle. And they ask us all to imagine a giant disc with a five-mile radius floating into the sky to protect us from inclement weather so that we can do our sacred work for the week. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know what I'm thinking to myself at this point. <laughs> I'm like, where am I? How did I get here? <laughs> I spent the next few days in the festival, walking around aimlessly, feeling like I didn't belong, and thinking that these aren't my people. I felt self-conscious and lonely and awkward in my own skin, and didn't really know what to do or where to go. I ended up talking to one guy named Aaron. He was a polyamorous Wiccan with two boyfriends that he left back home, something that I completely wasn't used to. But Aaron and I had a lot in common. We shared a common interest in music. We both liked M83 and Laurie Anderson, Radiohead and Bright Eyes. So we played music for each other and we had long conversations and he made me feel better during those first few days. So I decided to take a psychometry workshop and psychometry is all about getting in touch with your psychic abilities through touch. So everyone took one item, such as a necklace or a bracelet or a book that they owned, and we passed it around in a circle. And people were asked to get in touch with the psychic energy behind that object. And I thought, this is totally wacky. There's no way that I'm going to be able to touch someone else's object and get any essence of who that person is. But my own necklace ended up in someone else's hand. And he took the necklace and he said, I don't know why, but 
I'm getting a very strong imagery of an hourglass. And I said to him, well, that's because I keep this necklace draped on a giant hourglass back home. I was kind of shocked that maybe the psychic thing was working, but also still very skeptical and unsure what to make of the whole situation. Then the next day, I entered a sweat lodge. If you've never been in a sweat lodge before, it's this very small dome that's completely covered in blankets, and they fill it up with these hot rocks. They asked us all to take off our clothes and stand around the fire, which we did. It was very cold out, and it was a solemn moment. We went inside. There were six of us crammed very close together in a dark space. Two guys were shoveling hot stones into the sweat lodge and placing them in the center. As each stone came in, we were instructed to say, Welcome, Grandfather. We poured an herbal mixture of water over the stones, creating this steam that penetrated everything, and it smelled like tobacco and sage. And then we started chanting for Earth. We tapped into the deepest parts of our bellies, and we chanted whatever songs and words came out. It sounded like, and I was very uncomfortable, very, very hot and sweating, and my muscles were cramped. But I decided to stick through, and he had us chant for air. And we all chanted and sang songs for air, and then for fire, and I was just resisting and fighting and we got to water, we were all chanting for water, and I felt this immense peace wash over me, and all my anxiety and my discomfort just melted away, and I suddenly felt like I was sitting cross-legged in the middle of the stars with galaxies all around me in this cosmic stillness. From that moment on, I was very calm and at peace throughout the festival. And if you've ever read Harry Potter, you might remember in the sixth book, Harry Potter takes a potion called Felix Felicis. And that potion made him be at the right place at the right time, no matter what. It was like a drug that made him fit perfectly into the world and do all the right things. And I have no better way of describing how I felt for those next few days. No matter where I went, it was the right place to be. No matter who I was talking to, it was the right conversation to be having. No matter what I saw, it was beautiful and perfect. I was feeling all these things through the power of the meditation. I hadn't done any drugs. It was a completely drug-free week. That night, we did a ritual to Arishkagal, the Babylonian goddess of the underworld. I waited around a fire for my name to be called, and I remember at that moment looking into the flames of the dancing fire and feeling as though I could actually speak to the fire. I reached Arishkagal, the goddess of the underworld, 
which was really just a gay guy dressed in a black cloak with a hook for a hand. <laughs> and I'm thinking at the same time, this is so silly and it's so profound all at once. It came time to say goodbye, and we had a closing circle. I asked Odin if I might say a few words, and he said, of course. I addressed everyone in the group. I said, I wanted to thank all of you for creating a safe space, such an open and accepting environment, where I knew that I wouldn't be judged. I realized as I was saying it that I had tears streaming down my face. I remember the sunset that night as the most beautiful sunset I'd ever seen in my life. It was purple and orange and pink and green and all these colors that I'd never expected to see in the sky. And I felt looking out at that display that I wasn't alone. Odin then invited the weather witches to come back into the circle because it would be irresponsible to leave their weather spell up in the sky. So the weather witches asked all of us in the circle to focus on dissipating the disc that they had cast into the sky. And within the next 10 or 15 minutes, to imagine that that five mile radius in the sky was slowly closing in and allowing the natural weather patterns to resume their course. I packed my tent into my car, I loaded up my bags, and I was ready to drive out when I noticed a slight drizzle starting. I said my goodbyes, the drizzle was turning into a heavy rain, and then eventually a massive downpour. I turned to one of the weather witches and I said, hey, your weather spell really worked. And he lifted an eyebrow at me and said, yeah, of course, why wouldn't it? the story you just heard there was mention of the band m83 and you're hearing them now this is their latest called wait that was author omri navat before with a story we call i wonder 
And Omri's latest novel is called Where Spirits Live. It's on Amazon. People are saying the most beautiful things about it there. Go check it out. Now, you may well be thinking, well, yeah, sure, I'll check it out, Kev. But while I'm there on the old information superhighway, don't you think I should probably also be checking out the Support Us page at risk-show.com? I'd say, you know what? That is a very good idea. We are a team of people doing something we believe in very dearly. And we are building something to last. We are the people that are sourcing the stories, editing the work, producing the live shows, running the school. We very much rely on the donations of people who share our belief that storytelling contributes to the lives of the storytellers and to the lives of the listeners. Also, there's prizes. There's all sorts of wonderful things for various donation amounts. Uh, you could get my forthcoming ebook on storytelling, or a shout out on the podcast, or a one on one storytelling lesson with me, or I don't know, donate $500 or more and you request the prize. You custom fantasize it. <laughs> I like ordering people to fantasize. So check out that new Support Us page at risk-show.com, folks. We are hugely grateful for it. Now we have one more story for everyone today. We're going to lighten things up here. We're going to go to the, uh, the last Risk Live show in New York City. This is Michael Martin. He is an improviser and a teacher of improvisation here in New York. He has a popular blog called Pie Folk. Dot net, where you can see him making pies in the nude. Of course. I mean, wait, who wants a non-nudely made pie? It's an absurd thought. Absurd. Here's a very absurd man telling this story. This is Michael Martin. And it's a story we call Little Squirt. story. I think every neighborhood and every small town in America has a family like the Nelson family. And when I say that, these families can come in any shape and any size. They can be any race or ethnicity. They can be any creed or faith. Uh, the unifying element uh, to these families is that these are the family in the neighborhood that are known as batshit crazy. And uh, when we grew up, the Nelsons uh, lived across the street from us. So we were right across the street. Our house faced the house of the family that was batshit crazy. So uh, that's just the preamble, right, for this story. Uh, this story's set in 1993. 
Um, <clears throat> Michael Martin is 17 years old, and uh, his older brother is 19. And my older brother's uh, home from college for the summer, and it's a hot summer afternoon in Florida in a very small town, and we're sitting out on our front porch because we're just waiting for that Nelson family drama across the street to fucking explode all over the neighborhood, uh, as it frequently does. Uh, on this particular afternoon, Stanley Nelson, the patriarch of the batshit crazy clan, is doing his favorite activity, which consists of him sitting out in his driveway on a folding chair. Uh, he's a retired New York police officer, and he loves to sit out in his driveway and slowly clean his service revolver with a faraway look in his eye. Uh, and that's what he's doing this afternoon when an argument... They don't have any air conditioning, by the way, so even in Florida in the summertime, all their windows are open. So when they get into a knockdown, drag out, ape shit argument with each other, their dirty laundry is just fair game for the entire neighborhood to enjoy. And there's nothing that adolescent boys think is, is funnier than human misery. Am I right? Um, <laughs> and this house just radiated unhappiness. So we just thought it was a comedy gold mine. Uh, and at this moment, Tammy, uh, the youngest uh, Nelson daughter, and Lorraine, the Nelson matriarch, are engaged in a huge screaming fight, which sounded like this. Tammy, you get in there, and you clean up your plate. I swear to God, I'm not your slave. I was going to take you in town to rent some movies on VHS, but now you get nothing. You get nothing. I said I'd come in there when I'm ready. God, Mom! One of these days, Tammy. One of these days you're going to wake up and I'm not going to be here anymore. And you're going to come down for breakfast and you're going to go, what's for breakfast? Where's Mom? But Mom will be gone. And it will be too late, Tammy, and you won't understand. Oh, yeah, really, Mom? Can one of those days be tomorrow or better yet later this afternoon? Stanley! She yells from inside the living room to her husband, who has still got his thousand-yard stare out in the front yard cleaning his gun. Which, by the way, weird, right? Weird, right? She yells, Stanley! Get in here and help me parent these kids, or I swear to God, I will cut myself again! Lorraine Nelson loves to threaten self-mutilation where the whole neighborhood can hear the account. All right, so me and my brother are loving this. We're just, like, squeezing each other on the arm, and, like, I start making fun a little bit of, of Lorraine Nelson because, you know, a woman in misery is, like, a middle-aged woman in misery. Come on. And for a gay young man, that's, like, uh, that's just the gravy train, right? And so I start in, and I'm like, Stanley, get over here and help me parent these children, or I'll shove a pineapple in my vagina and rip my uterus out. My brother starts laughing. There's no more powerful feeling that I can possibly feel than the power of, of having charisma over my older brother. Something about him, he's a really cool dude. I came out to him a couple months earlier, and he just sort of shrugged it off, was like, he had one of those cool dude things to say about it. Like, he was like, yeah, I guess you're going to have to, like, you know, I guess you're going to have to have a crush on somebody. Might as well be a dude. That's my, that's my older, like, he's just so fucking cool, you know? And so I upped the ante a little bit, and I was like, Stanley, if you don't help me parent these children, I'll cut my tits off and bury them in the backyard. You won't find them until the raccoons dig them up. 
And he's laughing, and I feel super powerful. Like, I just need my older brother. He needs me for the laughs, right? Uh, but I need him for the approval. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes, a theme that has continued into my adult life. Uh, right. So, uh, at this moment, something super magical happens. Uh, there's a crack of lightning, and, and you hear thunder, and then it just starts raining cats and dogs. It's Florida. So, like, three seconds beforehand, there was, like, blue skies, fluffy white clouds, verdant live oaks dripping with Spanish moss. But now, it's, like, this cloud burst, but the sun's still shining, and it's an eerie green glow everywhere, and it feels super magical. Like, we just entered, like, a slow-motion sequence in a movie, and Stanley packs up his uh, folding chair and he takes his service revolver and he goes inside and I get an impish glint in my eye and I look at my older brother and I go hey Scott and he goes hey what and I go why don't we show these Nelsons what crazy really looks like and he goes hey dude what does crazy really look like and I go well I'm glad you asked it looks a little like this and I take my shirt off, and I kick off my shoes, and I take my socks off, and I take my pants off, and I run out in the front yard and start screaming at the top of my lungs. And it takes my brother about three seconds of cool dude deliberation before he's like, yeah, yeah, that's what we should be doing at this point in time. We should be running around in this rainstorm. And he's like making laps around like the mailbox and flipping off the neighbors. And I, a trained gymnast, am doing cartwheels, roundoffs, and handsprings in my soaking wet underwear as I'm make fun of Lorraine Nelson and scream, Stanley, help me parent these kids! Uh, and then it just, it feels magical. It feels like a slow motion montage from like one of those inspirational movies like Dead Poet Society or Terms of Endearment, that's about cancer. Let's go with Dead Poet Society. <laughs> and it feels like that, you know? It feels like time has slowed down and it really feels like there's a sense of camaraderie. that There's a sense that this moment is special, more special than other moments. And my brother and I, we start shooting baskets and playing basketball in the rain and we make laps around the house and we're just like being frisky with each other and it's not about being angry at the Nelsons it's more about us having a coming of age John Husey sort of moment where we liberate ourselves from the confines of social structures like clothing <laughs> and it just feels so good you know and we've given ourselves permission and like hey I know what you're thinking there was nothing gay about it there really wasn't it was a super beautiful charismatic moment between two brothers sir <laughs> And that's when I saw the garden hose. Sidebar. She knows where this is going. Uh, a gay friend of mine a couple months earlier had shown me how to give myself an enema because he was worried that I was having like a hard time with the anal sex. You know, being 17 and new to the game and all. Uh, and so, let me just put it like this. I see that there are some straight people here tonight uh, because who would wear clothes like that? Uh, when you're driving up the Hershey Highway, you want to make sure that the vehicle that you're driving in doesn't leave skid marks in the passenger lane. No? In the passing lane. Yeah, that was the joke. All right. Do you guys get the obvious metaphor, though, right? No? Because if you don't, I'm around after the show, and I'll show you. Anyway, I grab... <laughs> This guy's having an autism moment. <laughs> no. It gets worse. Uh, Dan Savage was wrong. So I, I grab... I, he was wrong. 
I grab the I grab the garden hose and I say to I don't want this charismatic moment where I feel beautiful and wonderful and alive and immortal with my older brother to end. And so I can feel it sort of like cresting and peaking, and so I want to do something even crazier. And I take the garden hose and I go, hey, you want to see my impression of a whale? And my brother really wants to see my impression of a whale. So I turn on the garden hose and I stick it up near my butthole and I fill my colon up with an inappropriate amount of water. Just an awful amount of water, you know, like distended, like starving kids in Africa sort of amount of water. And I lie down on the driveway and I go, look at me, I'm Moby Dick. And I squeeze really hard and this brilliant crystalline arc of water shoots, issues forth in a jet from my butthole and just travels five feet in the air across the driveway and into the yard and I'm super impressed with myself. I'm much older now and I'm not sure I have that kind of control over my rectal muscles anymore but at the time it was fucking splendid. And my brother is just, he's grabbing his sides and he's on his knees and he's laughing harder than I've ever made him laugh in, in, in his life. And he's like, do it again, do it again. I'm like, yeah, of course, I'll do it again. Oh, yeah. Oh, duh. You know, and then I take, I take the hose and I put it between my sweet cheeks and I uh, fill, up my, fill up my colon with like a whole bunch of water and I lie down on the driveway and I go, you'll never get me alive, Captain Ahab. And I squeeze really hard and I look over my shoulder and if we were in a John Hughes movie, The genre has shifted. (laughs) Because it's shifted to like disaster movie, hurtling toward my brother's face like some sort of errant comment in 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 an apocalypse movie is a golf ball sized turd that I shot at him out of my ass. Now, my brother then takes the opportunity to be a part of this movie script ending, and he does like a little matrixy dip, right, while I hear him in slow motion go, no, and the turd barely misses him. But at that moment, time stops. And he looks at me, and the admiration is kind of dimmed. And the charisma has evaporated. And it stops raining, and the sun comes out, and it's very quiet, very light. And we are no longer two kids from the Dead Poet Society, and we're no longer the guy at the end of the breakfast club that freezes in midair because he triumphed over himself. We're just two insecure teenage boys in our wet underwear out on the driveway in a hot Florida afternoon with the sun beating down on them staring at a rogue turd glittering angrily in the grass. And my brother looks at me, and my heart sinks, and he goes, dude, I'm going inside. And so I follow him inside, and we never spoke of it again. But it occurred to me, you know, the Nelsons never told me whether they saw us in the front yard, like running around and like flipping them off and cavorting and frolicking, or they never told me about the seeing, witnessing the joy and the charisma of that, and they never mentioned witnessing the shame and alienation of watching me give myself an enema and turn my butt into a shit cannon and fire turds at my brother's face. <laughs> And I don't know, but I do know later that week, a van arrived in their driveway, and it was a central heat and AC van. And (laughs) after that, they didn't air their (laughs) their dirty laundry for the neighborhood anymore. So mission accomplished on that front. But I thought maybe 
On another front, mission failed because in one single gesture, I had taken our entire family and I turned us into that family that every neighborhood has. You know, that family that's batshit crazy. Thank you guys. Folks, this is Alberta Cross behind me now with a song called Magnolia. And that story we just heard was live at the Risk show in New York City. The next one of those is on August 23rd. And wow, we will have the brilliant Mr. Reggie Watts. I am so thrilled to finally have Reggie on the show. Also, Marina Franklin that night. So don't miss it if you're in New York. And our next Los Angeles live show is August 30th. We'll have Danny LaBelle and uh, who else? Someone. Helen Hong. Now, is that all the shows I want to talk about? No, fat chance, motherfucker. Don't forget, there's Albany on September 8th. We're bringing Dave Hill to Albany. And the very next day, uh, September 9th, we'll, we'll be having a workshop. Uh, storytelling workshop right there in Albany. But listen, <laughs> there's another strange situation that's... We, we, we've been asked to do a show in Cambridge, Massachusetts that same weekend. So we're wondering if anyone out there can give us a ride from Cambridge to uh, Albany on September 8th. Look, there was a recent episode where at the end I asked if anyone out there would like to be my naked Asian house cleaning boy. Well, let me just say... There is a story in the works. There is an episode in the works about what happened. So the least I can do is ask you for a ride. Kerouac didn't drive, and neither do I. But we get around, motherfucker. We get around. Get off your ass and drive me to Albany! Whoa. Sorry about that. Guess that came out a little harsh. Folks, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. Leave your comments on iTunes 
Visit risk-show.com to find out about our all-star episodes for purchase, our t-shirts, everything else. And in the sweet holy name of Christ, my friends, just keep in mind that today is the day. Take a breath. Kids, this is risk. God damn it. <laughs> I keep blowing out on the microphone on the opening line. But you know what? I don't think I'm going to re-record it, dudes. I think you're going to get it straight up.